I think it's important really to frame this conversation when we start thinking about what the U.S. military and the National Guard, what they're going to do in response to a COVID-19 outbreak in this case or any kind of other uh, pandemic that we may see here in the future. Uh, there are plans for how the, the DOD broadly will respond to, for instance, something like a pandemic influenza or an infectious disease of some kind. They do not only exercises where they respond to these things in a simulated manner, but they, they also have a playbook. Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, editorial director at MWI, and this episode, I think, is quite possibly one of the most timely episodes we've had the opportunity to record and publish. The past days and weeks have been a really crazy time. The outbreak of COVID-19 has disrupted lives and really sort of the life of the nation. And the response to that outbreak, or at least one very specific component of it, is what we're going to talk about in this episode. My guest is Dr. Ryan Burke. He is a former Marine officer and currently an associate professor in the Department of Military and Strategic Studies at the U.S. Air Force Academy. He is also a non-resident fellow with the Modern War Institute and has spent a lot of time researching, writing, and thinking about what's called defense support of civil authorities. So with the COVID-19 pandemic as a backdrop, I asked him to come on the podcast and talk about the military's potential role in the response. Before we get to the conversation, just a couple quick notes. First, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and as of about a week ago, Instagram. It's a great way for us to stay in contact with the incredible community of listeners and readers who share our interest in topics related to modern war. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Dr. Ryan Burke. Ryan, thank you so much for uh, joining us. I always, you know, start by thanking the guests, but in your case, I, I really want to thank you because it was uh, incredibly short notice. I think it was just a couple of hours ago that I emailed you and said, "Hey, would you mind coming on and doing a podcast with us?" Yep, sure, happy to be here. So I'm gonna kind of let listeners. I think I'm gonna break the fourth wall of podcasting, so to speak, um, because you know normally. We try to avoid because it's a biweekly podcast and recording or recording schedules can be difficult to manage. Um, we try to avoid too many of, I guess, what you might call like audio timestamps, um, references to a certain date, or um, you know, really specific references to current events because there might be a couple weeks or or longer um, before we publish. But in this case, I think it's going to be impossible to avoid, and and we probably shouldn't try to because we're talking about something that's really really timely, and that's. Um, kind of the a, a military component of the response to the coronavirus outbreak. So right. um, just by way of background, earlier this week, uh, I read an op-ed, as I'm sure many listeners will have read, uh, by Governor Andrew Cuomo of the state of New York, um, in which he called for military mobilization to help respond to the outbreak. Um, it, specifically, I think he was talking about the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and helping build hospitals, but it got me thinking um, I think most listeners will know they'll have at least heard of, you know, things like Title 32 and Title 10. These are parts of U.S. law that govern how the U.S. military can be um, essentially be used on U.S. soil. But I think most people also know that there are some sort of restrictions. Um, we're not a country where the military has a, a, a domestic defense um, mission, so to speak. And so I wanted you on because I have a you know, a, a, a broad, but, but pretty superficial, I think, understanding of that. And I suspect that a lot of listeners, including some who might be in uniform now and might be involved in this, uh, might also. So 
So first kind of big question, um, you have studied and written quite a bit about um, what's called defense support of civil authorities. I wonder if you can just kind of give a big picture of what, what that means when people talk about that. Sure, absolutely. So, uh, you know, first and foremost, again, thanks, John, for having me on. I appreciate it. This is, it's a timely topic and uh, I've been doing the media circuits. This is my third interview this week. Uh, I'm also about to write another piece on the the topic. So, uh, you know, happy to to share my thoughts here. This is one of those things, as you mentioned, that there's a lot of folks that they they have these general understandings and dare even say a superficial understanding as to what the military can do when we involve ourselves domestically. And I'm going to say we a lot because I still kind of view myself as part of this military establishment. I've uh, obviously worn the uniform as a Marine officer. Uh, now as a professor here at the Air Force Academy, I'm still well, you know, well versed in this. I, I still kind of feel like I'm part of this. So, you know, if I say we, although I'm a civilian now, I still kind of view myself as part of this, sure. this broader uh, identity and establishment. So, you know, forgive me for that. But uh, as we as we think about this, right, you need to think about the fact that the first thing I'll say is that not all militaries are equal. And uh, what I mean by that, at least in terms of the law, uh, to answer your the first part of the question about the different titles and duty statuses that that are being thrown around out there, uh, we, I'll start from the bottom up. First, we, under, we need to understand that the National Guard, in terms of this idea of the National Guard, is kind of a misnomer. So the National Guard started out as the uh, as the militia in the, uh, the post-revolutionary war period, and it was not intended to be a standing army in any kind of uh, any kind of capacity. So the National Guard today, what was once referred to as the militia, is is first and foremost a state asset. Uh, what that means is they serve under the command authority of the state governor, and they primarily serve in state active duty status. You'll you'll see that often represented uh, represented as SAD status, and that is the primary duty status for National Guard troops. So when we see National Guard folks uh, out in these um, in these lines and, and they're conducting security or uh, administering tests for the folks that are coming in trying to be tested for the COVID virus, they, they're they doing that under state active duty status. They're not doing that under the purview of the federal government. The, the state governor has ordered them in effect to serve and provide this support, albeit to a civil authority, but nonetheless, they are serving in that status and they're under the purview of the, of the governor of the state. The, the so that's what... Reason- Sorry, go ahead. No, yeah. So that's what in um, New Rochelle, New York, which is one of the kind of the epicenters, the hotspots, so to speak, in um, in the U.S. When there have been National Guard troops out, Mm -hmm. um, presumably that's the sort of status that they've been operating under. Right, presumably, and that's one of the things that we often say we collectively as the uh, as the folks writing on and, and discussing this in the media, we often mistake is that uh, we say, oh, the National Guard, they're operating in, in Title 32 status or something. I'll get to that here in one minute, but they are right now, as as far as I'm aware, the National Guard in New Rochelle, they're operating in under state active duty status. They have been activated by Governor Cuomo and they're performing duties and functions as directed by the governor under the authority of, of him and his office. Okay. The key, the key distinction on this is that when National Guard troops are operating in state active duty status, they are not subjected to the Posse Comitatus Act, which we'll get into here in a, in a few minutes. But principally, what that allows them to do is it allows them or enables the National Guard troops to conduct law enforcement activities. And this is a, a key difference in duty distinctions that enables the National Guard to do these things, whereas other troops, uh, let's say the active duty military, federal armed forces, they cannot conduct law enforcement activities due to the restrictions of posse comitatus, albeit there are some kind of loopholes, if you will, which I'll speak about in a few minutes. The next duty, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Can I just ask, so 
you know, law enforcement activities, uh, I think most of us kind of have a good sense of that is, but is it codified somewhere what that means? Yeah. So law enforcement activities is not actually codified in, uh, in U.S. code. Uh, if you go to uh, 18 U.S.C. 1385, that's the actual legal designation or legal code for the Posse Comitatus Act that was signed into law in 1878. And the Posse Comitatus Act, it, it's, a, it's a fairly, fairly vague uh, description, uh, but basically specifies that the, uh, the president shall not use the active duty military, although it only specifies um, – uh, it only specifies two of the branches. It says that they will not, the president will not use the, the military to basically enact or, uh, or enforce laws domestically. Um, the, what is left to essentially codify what constitutes law enforcement is left into doctrine. So the Department of Defense has a series of uh, doctrinal publications that they use to provide for a further codification of what actually constitutes law enforcement. And I, I can come down, I can run down kind of the summary of uh, what actually constitutes law enforcement here in a minute. But what I want to do is just run circle back to the other National Guard duty status because I think it's important really to frame this conversation when we start thinking about what the U.S. military and the National Guard, what they're going to do in response to a COVID-19 outbreak in this case or any kind of other uh, pandemic that we may see here in the future. Um, so after state active duty status, then you have Title 32 status. Title 32 status is a duty status where the National Guard still operates under the command purview and authority of the state governor. However, they fall under a state and federal cost share arrangement where the federal government picks up a percentage of the, of the National Guard activity activities in terms of their uh, their pay and benefits and so forth. So the, in effect, the federal government, the DOD, will foot portions of the bill for the National Guard to operate within the state. A key point on this is that the majority, I'd say probably 90 plus percent of National Guard operations in recent memory, and talking in the last, uh, call it 25, 30 years, where we really started to kind of document these things in a more robust capacity, they have operated under state active duty status. It's a common okay. mis, uh, misinterpretation that whenever the National Guard is operating, folks think that they are operating in Title 32 status, when in fact they're not. Okay. Um, so then once you, uh, so you move to Title 32 status, then the next status that the National Guard can operate in is actually a, a federal active duty status, what we refer to as Title 10 authority, because Title 10 U.S. Code um, governs the armed forces of the United States. And, and the president can call forth the militia. If you look at the wording of Article 1, Section 8, uh, consider the Calling Forth Act, um, and it actually stipulates the president has the ability to call forth the militia, what is now referred to as the National Guard to serve in a federal capacity. Typically, the the Title X authority or this, this so-called calling forth of the National Guard is used for wartime augmentation. So uh, when we're fighting over in Iraq and Afghanistan, we've seen uh, multiple National Guard units around the country mobilized and activated to serve in augmentation of active duty forces. That is typically what this Title X authority is reserved for. However, it is important to note that it can be used, should the president deem necessary, it can be used for domestic mobility and uh, mobilization. Um, so it, it's key to understand those three different distinct duty statuses for the National Guard and how they operate and under what purview and authority and what they can and can't do in these certain circumstances. And then moving further right on that spectrum, then you get into the actual federal armed forces of the United States, the Title 10 troops, if you will. And that is what most of us come to refer to or come to think of as the active and reserve components of the of the armed forces. So uh, the Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marine Corps, both their active and reserve 
component. So again, not the National Guard because again, they're they're separate um, separate forces. So under Title Ten status, the the president remains and serves as the Commander in Chief, as we're probably all well aware, or at least most of us listening. Um, and in all circumstances, there's there's no deviation except for uh, one fairly unknown um, legal codification uh, that we can talk about with Hurricane Katrina and some of the lessons learned from that under dual status commander purviews. But again, um, far right of the spectrum, the active components and the reserve components serve under Title 10 authority and are effectively uh, operating under the the authority of the president as the commander in chief. As such, the Posse Comitatus Act prevents those active duty and reserve component forces from enforcing laws, acting as law enforcement um, augmentations in in uh, in domestic capacity. Okay, so I actually do want to get into the Katrina um, case because I think it's probably the, the the most robust kind of case that we have in recent history to to, to look at some of these issues. Um, but first, in a, in a case like this, considering, you know, when you just need manpower out doing, helping with all sorts of different things, does that mean that the National Guard is kind of the easiest um, entity to to call into action? I can't say that they're the easiest, but I can say that they are the the first line of defense, for lack of a better term. And I, I use these words carefully because I think there's a lot of connotations with certain word choices during these conversations, especially when we talk about military operations on U.S. soil. Um, but the reason I say that is because they are – this is – Principally, what the National Guard is is for, not necessarily pandemic response in that particular sense, but in supporting civil authorities at the state level, right? In in augmenting civil authorities, supporting them, expanding or extending capabilities, and so forth. And we think about the U.S. military, and then even the National Guard at the state level, and all the the robust logistical capabilities that the the military can provide in these cases with equipment. Uh, be it heavy equipment and, and resource movement or personal protective equipment or just simply manpower, logistical capabilities to move personnel and services and, and things of that that sort. I think the U.S. population and the public writ large has a tendency to, to think of the military as this wartime function, which they are. It's the principal, the principal duty. But at the same time, especially when it comes to the National Guard, there are these support capabilities that the, uh, the Guard, in, in particular at the state level, does provide. And one of the other things that I think we, we often Often overlook when we talk about military involvement in domestic response is that the military has an ethos of service. All right, we we look at again we being the military we look at these situations and see things happening that uh, may be fairly effective or have a negative impact on our communities and especially the national guard being that citizen citizen servant or citizen soldier mindset they they live and work in these communities and they're often willing to put the uniform on and come to the service and assistance of their community members because it frankly could be neighbors um, and colleagues that they live and work with on a daily basis so we have this this robust benefit and capability at the state level to mobilize national guard troops to again augment, extend, or expand local and state government capabilities when they were otherwise overwhelmed. So, if this, if if there are federal, so Title Ten forces, uh, right. be they reserve component or active component, um, mobilized in some form, um, what like what's the process? What has to happen in order for you know, say, for the president to uh, respond favorably to? Governor Cuomo's request. What's the what does that look like practically? 
So this gets back to one of the original questions that you asked me in the beginning of the interview is this idea of defense support of civil authorities, DSCA, DSCA for, for short. And what happens, and you can do a quick Google search. Any of our listeners could do a quick Google search and find myriad different um, flow charts that show the exact process and how it flows from one office or entity to the next. And I don't think we need to get into the nuts and bolts of the details of that because uh, it is quite complex, but it is, it's more effectively represented visually, I think, than I could otherwise describe it uh, verbally in this context. But the, the gist of it, what happens is the local and state governments, the onus or the, the requirement to identify a need sits with the local and state governments first. And typically what happens is a local and or state government perceives that they are now overwhelmed, their capacity to respond some capacity, in this case, a pandemic, maybe uh, they're unable to um, uh, to provide support at a local facility or a secure good order and discipline or something to that effect, and they feel as though their capacity is overwhelmed, these governments can request via a uh, formalized process support from the Department of Defense. And then the Department of Defense can turn around and receive that request, and they assess it for legality and cost and, and risk and a whole whole host of other requirements. And they come back down and they can say to that requesting entity, either, yes, we will provide support or no, we will not. In most cases, I don't have any empirical data to support the assertion, but in most cases, the DOD will generally look favorably upon these requests, provided they meet the basic requirements and there's no, uh, there's, there's no undue risk or, or gross cost uh, imposed on the, on the DOD in terms of response. They also look at the benefit, the perceived benefit of providing that support to a civil authority. And in most cases, we're talking about saving lives, you know, preventing property destruction and so forth. And these cases warrant a, a larger capacity that DOD often can provide. So DOD then comes down and they provide the this this idea of DISCA, Defense Support of Civil Authorities, and there's a series, again, of doctrinal publications and instructions that effectively govern what the U.S. military can and can't do. And I've written extensively on uh, on these various things. So in in a case where you do have both active say and national guard title 10 and title 32 forces uh involved in a response um in 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 whatever capacity is there a difference between what they're allowed to do and i'm thinking um you know i i have i you know i didn't pay close attention to it but obviously we all remember um hurricane katrina and i remember there being a discussion about you know 82nd airborne troops you know, in New Orleans and, you know, whether or not they should be carrying weapons and things. And for anybody who's been, say, in New York City in recent years, you've seen National Guard soldiers as part of what I think they call Joint Task Force Empire Shield um, at Union Station, Grand Central Station, um, sorry, uh, Penn Station, mm-hmm. um, sort of providing security and they're carrying weapons with magazines in them and things that, you know, th- there are very few places where you see uniformed members of the military carrying weapons when it's not, you know, part of a training exercise right. is there are national guard soldiers allowed to do certain things that are units allowed to do certain things that active duty units are not. Yes, they can. A short answer. And it really comes down again to that initial conversation that we had about the duty status designation. When the National Guard forces operate under state active duty status or Title 32 status, they are permitted to engage in law enforcement activities and they can do a variety of other things to augment law enforcement apparatus within their states. Um, the federal government, the Federal Armed Forces, DOD, uh, in this case, would not be allowed or not be permitted to do that under the purview of Posse Comitatus. However, again, 
again, as I alluded to earlier, there are some some loopholes uh, when we talk about things like the Insurrection Act and then Declaration of Homeland Defense operations and so forth. There are some things that allow for kind of a, uh, I don't know, the U.S. military to, to bypass or to establish exceptions to those restrictions, but they are few and far between. Uh, the short answer, again, is that back to the Katrina situation, we learned a lot from the military response in Hurricane Katrina, a sense that uh, there were a lot of command structure issues that went on that I think would be you know, too, too down in the depths and the weeds to really get into all the, the successes and or failures or perceived failures anyway that happened during that response. But suffice to say that the to use your example, the 82nd Airborne walking down Bourbon Street and some other places in downtown New Orleans with their rifles, um, you had some some pretty pretty remarkable media moments that were captured. Like for instance, General Honoré walking down the streets and and shouting at the uh, the soldiers to put down their weapons, right? And, you know, you're, you're here to help. You're not here to secure or enforce and, and things along those lines. And those, those images are captivating and they speak volumes about the, the legalistic framework that roots or that informs these responses. And mm-hmm. in that particular case, the, um, the lessons learned there were such that we need to have better command and control, but really more so coordination apparatuses that, uh, that better establish the, the relations between relationships, I should say, between the, the National Guard when they're operating under the, the state governor and the federal military when they're operating under the president. And uh, this is where you get into situations for our listeners that they are so inclined, they can go and read any of the things that uh, I or some other folks have written about this idea of the dual status commander concept. Yeah, I want to ask about that because we didn't have that in Katrina. Is that correct? We did not. And we had, it's actually, I shouldn't say that we didn't have it. We, uh, there was some discussion as to whether or not we should used a dual status commander during Katrina. However, the choice, there was a lot of situations between, um, between um, the, uh, the Louisiana governor and uh, President Bush that, that kind of detached or fractured that discussion. Um, but there was some legislation, I believe it was 32 USC uh, 315, I want to say it was the, was the actual code, uh, legal code that uh, would allow for a um, an Air Force officer or an Army officer, I believe, was the stipulation to accept a commission in the National Guard uh, without losing his or her active status. So that's uh, what they mean by dual status commanders. Essentially, so that's what they mean by dual status countries. commander, okay. right? And then there was another law, um, is Title 32, so it's 32 USC 325. And that law, in, in conjunction with 315, authorizes kind of on the inverse, instead of an active duty officer accepting a commission in the Guard uh, under 315. Section 325 of Title 32 authorizes a guard officer to be placed on active duty and accept a commission without losing guard status. But what that enables then is there is a singular point of of command that is responding or um, taking, I shouldn't say taking orders because that simplifies it, but is uh, receiving orders and carrying out the um, the wishes of both the state governor and the president. At, through the Secretary of Defense simultaneously. And, and also is, exercises command and control over both 
precise uh, act, yeah, say the, active the, units the exercise is legal command and control over both the active component and the and the guard forces albeit in state status uh, or under title 32 status and title 10 respectively so that, that was a a massive improvement in this idea of command control communication coordination that was a major lesson learned from katrina that we actually employed for the first time successfully in hurricane sandy and okay. i've written on that in, in detail so the so for those people who remember, you know, watching press conferences and seeing uh, General Andre, Lieutenant General Andre, um, he did not exercise legal command and control over the National Guard troops. Is that correct? That's correct. Well, um, okay. So I guess I have another question that kind of circles, circling back to, I guess, what prompted this, um, us to record this is, is the request for military mobilization for this particular response. And there was specific mention, as I mentioned, uh, of the of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Now, I think a lot of people might also know that the Army Corps of Engineers actually does a lot domestically. They oversee dams and and all sorts of things. Um, would it be easier to mobilize them because they do have this domestic purview already? So the Army Corps is a DoD asset. I mean, I think we need to we need to understand exactly what they are. They are a DoD asset, but primarily they do, as you said, John. They provide they provide support to larger infrastructure projects. And typically, what we think of with Army Corps support is that they're doing big critical infrastructure projects like um, like uh, levee uh, wall construction or floodplain mitigation projects or things along those lines that result in in significant infrastructure improvements to critical infrastructure nodes and apparatus around the country. And so the Army Corps has this this robust logistical capability as well as a personnel uh, platform they can operate on that frankly is is probably beyond, again, I'm not an engineer, I'm not an expert in this particular side of it, but uh, is is well beyond as far as at least I understand it, what most state and uh, or local and state governments can provide. And the Army Corps has been involved in in, in responses in some capacity, they were involved uh, to some extent in the uh, response to Katrina. They were also involved in the response to Hurricane Sandy, especially with some of the, the flood mitigation and uh, operations that occurred then. They, with regard to this current conversation, dealing with the pandemic now of COVID-19 and Governor Cuomo's call for them to come out and build field hospitals, I actually just interviewed with NBC News this past week, uh, I think on Monday, about this exact topic. And there's a lot of conversation. So the governor comes out and, and calls on the president to say that the Army Corps needs to come out and, and build field hospitals. And, and I think it's important to understand that the, the Army Corps is not that's not their primary mission, right? They, they are not, they don't build, they don't build hospitals as a primary function. That said, they can certainly augment and or support the construction of such, such infrastructure if called upon by the president and, and put into play in that kind of capacity that would fall under this, uh, the broader idea of defense support of civil authorities, although in, in a different, um, a different framework, but nonetheless, it's still a, a extensive capacity that the army, Corps would provide that I, I think there's going to be a lot of people out there listening to say this is you know, that's not what the Army Corps should do and, and they're they're probably right but what I will remind everybody is is that these are frankly unprecedented times and we are living in a situation where we have plans and say again we being the DoD uh, there are plans for how the the DoD broadly will respond to for instance something like a pandemic influenza or an infectious disease of some kind um, when you say but, plans. It, it, Meaning there have been they sort of war gamed this scenario yeah. and okay 
Yeah, so the DoD, they, they do not only exercises where they respond to these things in a fictitious manner but or a simulated manner, but they, they also have a playbook, if you will. If you look at, uh, I think I forget the exact title of the document, I think it's something to the effect of the DoD uh, campaign plan for pandemic influenza and infectious diseases. Um, there is an actual document that specifies what the DoD will do, and uh, it breaks it down primarily into three pillars, which I just happen to remember. Um, the first one being preparedness and communication, uh, the second one being surveillance and detection, you know, to think of think of assisting folks at critical infrastructure points of entry on uh, detecting potential uh, potential infected patients or something to that effect. So we think about augmenting TSA at uh, international entry points um, at the airports. And then finally, the, the third pillar being response and containment. I, I think that we are, we in this country right now, we're probably past maybe the first pillar and the second pillar. I think we're really into this, this response and containment phase where that will really stipulate what DOD does. And that's when I think you're going to start seeing a lot more of the military activities. And not to say that the military is going to be going door to door, right? And telling people that they need to stay in their houses because the governor has ordered a curfew or something to that effect. I, I don't think we're going to get to that point, at least anytime in the near future. Yeah. So, um, so if we're not going to see, you know, soldiers knocking on doors, telling people to stay inside, what, what might we see? Like what, what would mobilization of military forces look like in the context of, of, of this crisis? Sure. So I think you're going to see some activities with DOD that will run a, a broad spectrum of support operations. You, you may see DOD components being active duty military going to testing sites, so like you're seeing the active, the uh, National Guard doing right now. They might act as further augmentation or support. You might see DOD transporting personnel. Should we get to a, a larger outbreak where we need to we need to relocate uh, maybe some folks out of, let's say, a nursing home, like we've seen some of these situations happen and uh, local and state capacities are either unable or unwilling to provide that support. You might see DOD with their broader infrastructure and logistics capabilities supporting requests like that. We're not, we're going to see a lot of these kind of things that, that may happen should the outbreak get worse. And I, it's, it's worth mentioning too, if you think about some of the reports that have come out and some of the the projections, if we're looking at uh, possibly over a million casualties, and this, these are numbers that are, are not in any way secretive. These are established numbers. There's a GAO report, I think a few years ago, a government accountability office report that, that, that talked about this exact situation that uh, we could have in excess of a million casualties. And if that's the case, then our, our infrastructure in terms of response, um, hospitals, health care and so forth will be overwhelmed such that we will need active military. We will need additional support forces to, or support functions to support requirements in a myriad of capacities. And it's entirely possible that we see things like the DOD operating in, uh, in support of field hospitals. Should we get back to that, con that uh, conversation with the Army Corps and whether we want to employ military forces to support activity in that uh, in that capacity, it, it is possible, and that would fall under the the purview of this uh, this broader idea of defense support of civil authorities, uh, albeit you know in a fairly specific manner. So, in advance of this conversation, I had um, I had a um, a brief uh, conversation with a uh, retired 
military uh, lawyer, JAG officer, mm-hmm. um, who was actually, who writes a lot about this and, and other sort of legal issues uh, pertaining to the military. And he, he was kind of, he told me that he was thinking of writing an article that's sort of advocating against militarizing this response, mm-hmm. um, which is obviously very general. But I wonder if um, you can kind of highlight what are the pitfalls of this? You know, it, it, the way that you've described it is it, this this is a, pr- a ready uh, pool of 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 resources, um, people, uh, equipment, things that can be uh, laid against this challenge. What are some of the pitfalls that people worry about? The first pitfall is the the optics, right? So people, when you think of the military, you think of them responding domestically. We have a tendency to think of um, dramatizations like, uh, for instance, the the movie Outbreak that came out in the early '90s with Dustin Hoffman, or a Contagion, or even more recently, the I Am Legend. And we see these these conjurings, these images of military forces basically clamping down on society, right, and and uh, essentially imposing. I don't, you know, it's not a martial law kind of situation, although we can get into the, the details of that. Um, but you, we have these fears that are brought about because they, they frankly tug on the emotional heartstrings of the U.S. populace um, when we're talking about military involvement in, in domestic type operations. And I think that it's some of it is sensationalist. Some of it is, is media rhetoric, you know, using phrases like, um, you know, the war on COVID-19 and we're combating the threat and, and things along those lines. I mean, these, these words and phrases, they, they invoke, they invoke a particular response. And it's important to understand that uh, it, while the military does have this capability, I, I tend to agree with your colleague that you spoke with that uh, this may not be the best uh, best use of the military, at least at the, at the current time, because again, it, it may have that the opposite effect where it may scare more folks into thinking this is, you know, just a, it, I'm not, listen, I'm not, not saying that this is not a serious situation. It certainly is. It's unprecedented. But if we are trying to maintain order, if we're trying to maintain some sense of calm or semblance of calm and, uh, and stability in society, this may have a an opposite effect if we were to start calling in large swarms of uh, military forces to support civil authorities in, in myriad different capacities. And I think we need to be really mindful of the optics and, and what that, what that uh, will produce. So we've covered a lot and I understand these things better and I hope listeners will as well once they've heard this, but is there anything else that we haven't touched on that you think is important to, uh, in order to kind of conceptualize how this works? I think it's important to, to remind listeners that these are unprecedented times, as we've talked about, and, and albeit there are laws and policies that govern what the military, the active component in this case, uh, what they can and can't do, especially as it comes to or when it comes to law enforcement and various other things. It, these are still these are unprecedented times, but we need to keep in mind that the military will be there to support, will be there to support and and aid in our response and recovery efforts, and that's principally what it's all about. And we can talk about the Posse Comitatus Act, how they shouldn't be doing certain law enforcement activities. We can talk about the Insurrection Act as a loophole to this, should the, should the president deem necessary. And the military can go and engage in law enforcement activities should such conditions warrant. We can talk about all these things and whether or not they should or shouldn't and so forth. And frankly, it's probably beyond what you and I are, are trying to, to convey. We're just talking about the, the nuances, the ambiguities, and the significance of some of these decisions. 
kids. And I think the final point that I'll make is just to remind our listeners that, yeah, there is a complex web of laws and policies and, and doctrine that, that inform what the military does. But these things are broadly interpreted, widely interpreted, and that can be both the point and the problem. And what I mean by that is that the the military, or excuse me, the laws that, that govern what the military does domestically can be interpreted one way in a, in a broad sense to say that the military can do all sorts of things. And there's these various restrictions, but then there's these loopholes. So then if certain conditions are met, we can do these things. But then they can also be interpreted in a much more narrow capacity such that uh, there's going to be, inevitably, there's going to be debate. There's going to be discourse and dialogue that says either they should or should not be doing these things. Well, Ryan, thanks again uh, for making some time. I know it's uh, it's crazy with people working from home, and and I know you probably got uh, kids at home that you're trying to yeah. manage, and 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 everything as well. So I really appreciate you making some time, and I think listeners will uh, will also appreciate your perspective on it. So thanks very much. Yeah, absolutely, and thank you again, John, for reaching out and having this conversation. I think it's important, so I appreciate the time and uh, and your interest. Thank you. Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing before you go, for those listeners who are already subscribed to the podcast, thank you so much. For anyone who hasn't, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. And while you're there, please take just a moment and give the podcast a rating or leave a review. All right, thanks again. Thanks again.